Well, good morning. Um, I'm Howard Griffin, actually senior pastor here. It's been a while. <laughs> Great to be back. Once again, thank you for the time off. As you know, I've been working on my dissertation. Uh, I've been working on my doctorate of ministry for seven years, and uh, since I've come here, i had a hard time working on that paper. And so uh, I took uh, the personnel committee in session, gave me May and June to write, which was great. I've written over 100 pages out of a document that has to be at least 125. I plan for it to be 126, so uh, not going to go too much longer. It's 125 to 175, so there's this range here, but I don't see a need to go that long. But uh, grateful for the time off and uh, just glad to be with you. And if you've been with us this summer, you know we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And I've had people ask me from time to time, you know, every summer we go through a book. Like last summer we went through James, if you remember that. And they said, well, why do we go through a book? Why don't we do like a a sermon series on marriage or relationships or whatever? And and that's all fine. And we're going to get to marriage uh, in a couple of weeks because Paul's going to talk about it in Ephesians. But the reason we do this is because during the Reformation, when Martin Luther uh, was just trying to reform the church before he got kicked out of it, uh, he realized that the church was doing things that were contrary to the consistent teaching of Scripture. And so he was upset about that, and he wrote the 95 Thesis on the doors of the Wittenberg Chapel. Well, eventually he got kicked out of the church, and Martin Luther and, and a guy like, named John Calvin, who was Frenchman, uh, who went from France to Geneva, Switzerland, realized that in the church, uh, using the lectionary all the time, there were key Scriptures that the people never read and never knew. And so they went through this practice called Lectio Continua, where basically you preach through an entire book of the Bible, every verse. That way you can't avoid anything. You've got to hit it all. And that forces us to read verses we don't necessarily like or want to hear, because there's things that God wants to tell us that we need to do that we don't necessarily want to do, aren't there? Now, we've been going through Ephesians, and, and Presbyterians actually are drawn to the book of Ephesians because we are told in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are predestined. And we like that. Yes, it's good to know we are predestined. And uh, we like that because, you know, we like to know we're chosen. It's like when you're a little kid and, and they're picking teams. And I, I played basketball in, in high school. But when I was a little kid, we'd go to the playground and we're picking teams. And early in my basketball career, when I wasn't very good, uh, it was pretty uh, discouraging when they would, there'd be like 11 kids on the playground. And they'd be picking teams. And they did 10 because they had five on five right. And like, you're not chosen. Like everybody and then your last kid, you know, get chosen. And I'm like, oh, just breaks your heart. So it's good to know that you're chosen, right? And, you know, if you didn't grow up Presbyterian, this concept of predestination that, and, and God's election, and, and Paul says this, we didn't make this up, right? It's in Ephesians 1, it says that you were, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. You were predestined. Now, we didn't make it up, but we like to talk about it because it's in the Bible. But my parents, for instance, uh, they were, my mom was raised Baptist in, uh, in, Quanta, or in Kaufman, Texas, at First Baptist Church there, and my dad was raised Methodist in Quanah, Texas. And so when they got married, uh, they were trying to sort out what church are we going to go to, and they shopped around in Midland where they were first married, and they were looking around, and they came to the First Presbyterian Church in Midland, and they liked the choir, and they liked the preacher, and said, this is our church home, we know people here, this is going to be great, and they joined. And then after being there about a year, they realized that while they thought that they chose to join First Pres, they were actually predestined to be at First Pres. So you are here because of God's great plan. Now, like I said, if you didn't grow up Presbyterian, this idea of election can be a little bit, uh, throw you off a little bit, but, but in the scriptures, we can see consistently that God chooses people. And Paul talks about predestination because if anybody knows what it meant to be chosen, it would be Paul, right? Because originally his name was Saul, and he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, and he was on the road to Damascus to go kill Christians. That was his plan. But God had another plan. 
And God blinded Saul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus spoke to Saul, and his name was changed to Paul, and he was forever changed in that encounter with Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes about being chosen, he knows because he was chosen by God. Now, the Bible doesn't say we're puppets. Every one of us still chooses each day to sin. I'm sure we we make choices that are against God's will. But our relationship with God begins with God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we read that this is love, not that we love God, but that God first loved us and sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God first loved us. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians that you are predestined, you were chosen, that you were saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest no one should boast. And then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 3 that we might grow in the knowledge of God's great love. It's in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is speaking in the indicative, you were loved, you were chosen, you were predestined to do a mighty thing. You are God's chosen people. And then in Ephesians 4, it goes from indicative to imperative. Paul begins to tell us what we need to do in light of the fact that we were chosen, in light of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, in light of the fact that we are loved by God, here is how we should now live. And Will did a great job last Sunday talking to us about the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, that in light of God's love, we are actually called to be united in His love. And, And not to be united for unity's sake, but that we might become more like Christ as we are united as one body in His name. And now we continue in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So open your pew Bibles, if you can, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. It may be found on page 1244, where the Apostle Paul will not only tell us more of what we ought to do, but ultimately will tell us how we are to have a new life in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity To the devil, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be a put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another 
as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, please speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. As I read that first verse, I'm wondering, how do the Gentiles walk exactly? I mean, do they strut, you know, they have a slip? But what he's talking about is how they live their life. How did the Gentiles, the non-believing Gentiles in Ephesus walk? I mean, we're not supposed to walk like them, so how did they walk exactly? Well, as I've done research on the ancient Ephesus in the first century, it was a major seaport a city with great commerce there, and it had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there, the Temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a goddess to Zeus. In fact, we've got a, a picture here of the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. In fact, they've done a, a replica, a model of that in Turkey, and we can show you the next picture of what it looked like back then in the first century. It's an amazing structure, an amazing temple to Artemis. And Artemis, she was the goddess of fertility, and she was a huntress and the daughter of Zeus. And so here's a statue of what Artemis looked like uh, in the first century. It's a statue they found, an ancient statue from Ephesus. And you can see she's got lots of lumps on her chest. Those are actually breasts, and she's a, a fertility god. Now, just think about it for a minute. This is a seaport where sailors come all the time to trade, and they come to the temple of Artemis to worship a fertility goddess. And the worship in Artemis of Artemis was a lot different than the way we worship today. A lot different. <laughs> It's a very sensual, orgiastic experience, and sailors love to go worship Artemis. So when Paul, who lived in Ephesus for over two years, according to the book of Acts, who lived in Ephesus for over two years, when he tells them that they must, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's telling them, don't live like that. You used to worship that way. Don't do that anymore. Flee from sexual immorality. In fact, don't even joke about such things. Because that's not becoming of the saints of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 19, these people have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul's telling them, look around. Look at these non-believing Gentiles. Don't act like them. You are loved. You are chosen. You are predestined. You were saved by grace. Live in a new life, in a new way. Then he begins to give them specific instructions on how they ought to do that. He tells them, they, you know, you've got to speak the truth. Don't be people of falsehood. If you're stealing, you've got to quit stealing. You need to get a job and, and so you can help other people who are in need. You've got to be the kind of person who in their anger doesn't sin. You, you don't speak maliciously of others. Don't slander. Don't get angry in that way and, and hurt people. He says, don't let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be a part of your life and malice. 
No, you got to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Now, I read this list, and as a lifelong Christian, it seems kind of obvious to me. This isn't new information, is it? I mean, surely while Paul was in Ephesus, he had told them not to involve themselves in sexual immorality or to even joke about those things. Surely he told them they've got to be people of truth. Surely he told them about the Ten Commandments and you can't steal. I mean, surely while he was with them, he told them these things. Why is he having to write about it now to this church in Ephesus many years later from a Roman cell? Probably because they weren't doing these things. They were more like the culture and less like Christ. You know, there's some simple rule in our house. We have several simple rules. One of the simple rules is that at the end of a meal, at the end of dinner, you're supposed to take your dirty plate, you're supposed to rinse it off and put it in the dishwasher. Every kid can do this. I have a four-year-old, even he can do it. I don't have to tell them what to do when they do what they're supposed to do. But when they're not doing what they're supposed to do, I have to remind them. Paul's writing his words to remind the Ephesians because they're not doing what they should be doing. What's the key? What's the key to making sure that we have a new life in Christ? Paul has told us what we ought to do. We know that these are things that we should be doing. But even today, we don't do them. Even today, in our anger, we can often sin. Even today, we can slander others when they hurt us. And we can speak maliciously about others. Even today, we can get involved in, in sexual immorality or we can, we can tell jokes that, that we shouldn't even be telling. Even today, in our lives, we can covet things that we don't have. and We can do things that we know we shouldn't be doing. What is the key to putting on this new life that Paul's telling us to put on? I actually believe the answer is revealed in verse 18. Paul writes about the Gentiles who don't believe. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's not just ignorance that has led them astray. It's a hardness of their heart. They're ignorant because their heart is hardened. Their heart is hardened to God, and so now they are ignorant of God, and they live in this darkened understanding. If we want to live and put on this new life, we've not only got to transform our mind, we have to have our heart transformed as well. I heard one person say, it's been said many times, that the longest distance on the earth today is the 18 inches from our head to our heart. As American Christians, we have more information than the church probably has ever had in its history. I mean, we have got different translations of the Bible. In my home alone, I've got the ESV and the NIV and the New American Standard, and I've even got the message. I've got Greek, and I've got Hebrew, and I've got commentaries, and you can go online, and you can get great information about Jesus and the ancient times, and you can learn all these great things. The church in Ephesus didn't have leather-bound Bibles like we do today. It was an oral, uh, they learned orally about um, Jesus, it was, they, they, they learned about Christ through the stories that others would tell. And yet we have this great information today, and yet we're still making many of the mistakes that the church in Ephesus was making. How can we make sure that our hearts and minds are focused on God, and specifically, Jesus Christ? 
one of the great spiritual practices of the earliest church is Christian meditation. Now, there's meditation that you'll find in Eastern religions where the focus is simply clearing your mind. But in Christian meditation, you, you don't just clear your mind. You actually focus your mind on the things of God. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, when he tells them, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. There's a connection between our mind and our hearts. And Jesus says that it's out of the mouth, it's, about, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth ultimately speaks. So if I want to be the kind of person who naturally speaks the truth in love, who is slow to anger, who is forgiving of my neighbor, who doesn't speak malice or slander or covets or does any of the things that we're not supposed to do, if I want to be that kind of person, I've got to have my mind and my heart renewed. And one ancient practice that we can do is called centering prayer. And we're going to try that here in just a minute. Centering prayer is simply where you focus on the name of Jesus. You say the name of Jesus, and then you begin to think about Jesus. You think about his humble birth in Bethlehem so many years ago. You think about the fact that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John the Baptist. You think about the way that he went into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan. You think about Jesus and how he called those first disciples, Peter, James, Andrew, and John at the Sea of Galilee and said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You think about the the blind man that he gave sight to and the lame man that he allowed to walk and the time that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And you think about the fact that on the night that he was betrayed, he instituted the Lord's Supper, invited us to come to the table to remember him. You think about right after that, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done, O God. You think about the fact that he was bruised and beaten and crucified on a cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all. And you think about on that third day, he rose again, proving to be victorious over both sin and death on our behalf. You think about the great commission when he told us to go and make disciples, and you think about the wonderful ascension. As you're trying to think about these things, you might get distracted. And in the moment you get distracted, you simply say the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, to help recenter our hearts and minds on Jesus. And as we center our hearts and minds on Jesus, our relationship with Jesus grows, and we're transformed from the inside out with a renewing of our mind and our heart together. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to say the name of Jesus, and I want you just to think about the life of Jesus and who Jesus is and what he's done for all of us. Let's pray. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you died on a cross, and as you hung on that cross, you prayed a prayer of forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Lord Jesus, you have forgiven us. And so may we have the strength and the wisdom and the grace to forgive others so that we might reflect your love in all that we say and do. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, he doesn't say don't get angry. The reality is that we are going to get angry in this life. Anger, according to psychologists, is a uh, physiological response to an outside stimulus. There's three basic emotions that drive anger. They tell us that it's hurt, fear, or frustration. And the psychologists tell you that when you begin to become angry, that what you want to do is you want to count to 10 and you want to assess your emotions and say, what is this hurt or fear or frustration? Why am I angry? And then you try to address that emotion so that you might not act out in your anger. I got a different recommendation. When you find yourself becoming angry, next time, pray. Pray and meditate on Jesus. And now if he was willing to forgive us, shouldn't we be willing to forgive others? May each one of us take the time we need each and every day to center our hearts and minds on Jesus so that we might be transformed from the inside out, so that we might be the kind of person who is forgiving Tender-hearted, loving, seeking to point others to God's great love. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the great gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we give you thanks for your word, and we thank you for the Apostle Paul who reminds us again something we needed to be reminded of, that in our anger we should not sin, that we should be people of truth who speak the truth in love. That we should be the kind of person who doesn't slander or gets caught up in malicious talk or, or isn't involved with crude joking, Lord, but we're the kind of people who, who speak thanksgiving, that our words might be an instrument of your grace. Oh, God, you tell us that it's out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth ultimately speaks. So, God, I pray that you might continue to renew our hearts and minds so that we might reflect your love each and every day. And I pray that we might take the time we need each and every day to center our hearts in you by remembering the love of Jesus and remembering all that Jesus has done for us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. In response to God's word, let us stand as the faithful have done before us and proclaim what we believe 